So, Caitlin, who are we canceling today? We're canceling fatphobic medical organizations. It's about time. You're not going to believe what they're proposing for our kids these days. Hey everyone, I'm Caitlin Burns. And I'm Oliver Ash. And you're listening to Cancel Me Daddy. The show where we take a closer look at all of the panic ground cancel culture. With thoughtful analysis. And verbal shitposting. So, Oliver, how you doing these days? Obviously terrible. Isn't everybody terrible? Oh my gosh, my brain. My brain is so bad. I've been trying to stay off the internet. Oliver, are you, are you feeling eradicated today? I'm feeling very eradicated today. <laughs> oh, this isn't funny, but all I can do is laugh because it's so bad. I don't even know where we go from here. Oh, we live in hell. We do live in hell. Um, well, uh, I I don't know. Um, what have you been doing to take care of yourself and connect with your body? Uh, lots of coffee and video games. <laughs> that sounds, the coffee, maybe. The video games sound like dissociation, but I'll I'll take it for the taking care of yourself. I mean, yes, fair. It's true. I've been, I've taken a few indulgent bubble baths with bath bombs and have been eating like bacon, egg and cheese and doing things like that to, to try to try to be present when I'm not dissociating because of the <laughs> my, hell and terror that we live in. My go-to breakfast is uh, avocado, egg and cheese. Oh, that's incredible jealous i need some avocado now um so today for the show um we wanted to take a look at recently the american academy of pediatrics released these new guidelines um for treating what the organization describes as quote-unquote obese children including weight loss drugs and even surgery for minors There's been a lot of conversation around that, especially in the last couple of weeks, because that recommendation came out um, shortly before a report from the Center for Disease Control about what kids are eating was published. And that's being used to further marginalize and pathologize fat kids. And so for this episode, we decided to invite this incredible thinker, writer and advocate named Deshaun Harrison on the show uh, to talk about anti-fatness, the harm it causes, and how it's rooted in anti-blackness. So really excited to share that with y'all. Let's get into the interview. I'm so excited to introduce Deshaun Harrison here today on our show. They are the author of a wonderful book called Belly of the Beast, The Politics of Anti-Fatness as Anti-Blackness. They're also editor-at-large of Scallywag Magazine and one of the hosts of the podcast Unsolicited, Fatty's Talk Back. Deshaun, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Deshaun, I've been looking forward to this since we arranged it the other day. But specifically, we wanted to ask about, there's been a lot of sort of online discourse about the guidance around fat children. And this is not like my area of expertise, but like I mentioned before we started recording, I sort of uh, tangentially follow this discourse, but um, 
Can you just give us a quick sort of nuts and bolts rundown of what's been going on with that and sort of why people have been talking about this? There has been an overwhelming discourse happening within fat space because there is this sort of new ruling where fat kids are plainly stated, right, are being attacked, where folks are trying to sort of create conditions where they can control fat kids um, by way of bariatric surgeries, um, by way of different types of fad diets that we have seen over and over again that just do not work as a way to, quote unquote, combat childhood obesity. And I think that this is particularly frustrating within our community because of a couple of reasons, but one of them being because we're in a moment where trans kids are being antagonized by the same government, right? And are being told that they're too young to have any sort of um, hormone blockers or any sort of surgeries to determine what their gender is or or isn't, right? Um, And in that same breath, fat kids are being told that they don't get to determine how they look or, or the type of care that they should or should not want. And it sets a dangerous precedent, right, to be able to determine whether or not the quote unquote answer, right, and, and I'm going to say that I'm saying that in quotes because there is no answer needed for this, but whether or not the quote unquote answer for childhood mm-hmm. obesity is whether or not they should be put under a knife against their will. And in your book, you kind of Mm -hmm. looked at some of the history of the CDC and its historical anti-fatness. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that. Yes. So in the book, I use a book written by someone else's name is Oliver, um, where the author writes about this journal entry Um, that was alleged research conducted by a team of scientists, um, some of which belong to the CDC. And they published this journal entry in 2004. Um, And in in the book, I call it the journal entry heard around the world because that's precisely what it was. It was this one research project, I'll say, wherein the CDC and these other scientists noted that 400,000 Americans were being killed by obesity a year, um, overtaking the number one cause of of death being tobacco. But what we eventually found um, is that this number was found through them using three decades old data, 30-year-old data. Um, But what wasn't considered was that in this research, all they looked at was this amount of thin folks have died, this amount of fat folks have died, There wasn't a concern of how those folks died, what led to their deaths, what was a part of um, this data. It was just they were fat, they died, they were thin, they didn't die. And so that became the number that that was etched into the sort of American psyche, right, where now folks in science communities, folks in our government, folks in media, were using this number as a way to build a campaign against fat folks. This becomes the modern day um, obesity epidemic. And in 2005, after a number of folks had written articles that sort of questioned the scientific method behind these numbers that have been published already, 
And after a CDC official had emails had leaked that, that basically named that he would have never published that journal entry had he been able to, to look over it because it wasn't mathematically sound or scientifically sound. So they issued a, a retraction in 2005 that said, well, actually, the number is 112,000 people a year, not 400,000 people a year. And that's a big difference, um, even though I think many of us within the fact hmm. fat politics space would name that that nobody is dying from obesity itself each year. But going with these numbers, 400,000 and 112,000 is a very big difference. Uh, but it didn't matter. That retraction didn't make a difference because there'd already been a, a year-long campaign against mm-hmm. fat folks that had given the CDC, um, the government, and the media money that they needed to build and sustain this campaign, right? And so now it becomes a part of how society functions to be able to mm-hmm. build projects and create entire narratives around our, our bodies, our experiences. And, and that's how the obesity epidemic becomes what it is today. Um, that's how we get a lot of the fad diets, a lot of the anti-obesity drugs that are used for folks, and a lot of the the standards for surgery, um, which we were just talking about, take effect through this one journal entry heard around the world. And that is the CDC's history with very, very, very harmful and, and anti-fat rhetoric. Um, and we continue to see that today through how they treat COVID, right? Um, obesity was not listed as a risk factor for COVID-19 until it was noted that Black people were dying disproportionately um, more than white folks from COVID. And at that point, it becomes listed as a risk factor for Mm -hmm. COVID-19. Can you talk about how uh, race intersects with all of this, right? Because what you just mentioned is really interesting. How does sort of the racial dynamic play into the the politics around fatness and fat policy? I don't know if fat policy is the right word, but like policy around, you know, obesity or whatever, um, whatever you or, or, or the government wants to call it. Like, we know what we're talking about here. But like, how, how yeah. does that play in? It plays a, a significant role in not only how quote-unquote obesity becomes a term and and becomes a thing to be um, rallied against, but also in in the ways that anti-fatness becomes a structural identity or Mm -hmm. rather a structural ideology in the first place, right? So Sabrina Strings wrote a brilliant book titled Fear in the Black Body, The Racial Origins of Fat Phobia. Mm -hmm. And in that book, she, she details the ways that anti-fatness becomes a coherent ideology through the slave trade, through what I call the making of the slave. Um, And what that means is that European slave owners, American slave owners, saw fatness on Black flesh and were like, okay, for us and in our society, it symbolized wealth and meaning and and things of that nature. But what we see on on these folks, it, it looks grotesque. It looks unrighteous. It looks harmful, bad, right? And so through this transatlantic slave trade, through the making of the slave, we also get this situated or standardized ideology that is anti-fatness. And so that is to say that there is no anti-fatness without slavery, which is to say that there is no anti-fatness without mm-hmm. Black folks, without the making of race as an ideology. And so how it plays out in, in our current society, right, is in the book, I talk about 
a Belgian mathematician named Adolf Kedelet, who is the father of what we know as the BMI um, or body mass index. And this Mm -hmm. scientific measurement, I'm using that very, very loosely. (laughs) Um, Very, very, very loosely. (laughs) This measurement is something that was born of eugenics, that was born of race science, and in many ways was supposed to symbolize the general health of entire populations, but it was based solely off of Scottish and French soldiers, right? So so cis white men who looked nothing like any of the rest of us, <laughs> um, but particularly looked nothing like Black folks. And yet this is the standard for how we determine health in our medical industry. And so in modern society, right, most black folks who enter into a doctor's office are being told that they are obese, irrespective of the size of their body, because it's being based off of a 200 plus old, right, piece of measurement that was never intended to hold the variations of people's bodies um, and, and how they are structured. Um, And so when it comes to anti-fatness as anti-blackness, I I think I detail in the book a number of ways. These two things are sort of confounded. But I think what what matters in this conversation is that the medical industry or rather what sort of creates the conditions for the CDC to be able to function in this way as something that is actively against childhood and adult obesity is that for obesity to, to function in the way that it does, Black folks have to be subjugated. Black folks have to be discriminated against. Um, and so what that means in real time is that the CDC, for example, recognizes that, quote unquote, obesity is, and I'm using quotes because we don't really use that language in in our sphere of, of the world. And many of us actually understand obesity to be a slur. And so I, I use it in quotes just to be clear about that. But the CDC recognizes racialized experiences to factor into obesity. But in the same time, they call obesity a common, serious and costly disease, which is to say that what they understand fatness to, to function as is as something that costs the U.S. government a lot of money um, because they have to then con- consider that different folks come in different sizes, right? What they also mean by costly is that, and this is written on the CDC's website quite literally, is that obesity affects military readiness. And what that means is that fat folks cannot be in the military and therefore they see fatness as something to combat so that folks are prepared to be imperialists. And why I think that this is something that we should recognize as a racial issue is because we know it's a very common understanding that the U.S. military oftentimes recruits in low income or poor or impoverished communities. Many of those communities are made up of black folks, right? But black folks also make up the majority of the fat politic in the U.S., and so it's a very it's a very particular experience that doesn't have to be explicitly named as an anti-black issue by the CDC to make clear that it is an anti-black issue because if they're recruiting in black communities, which make up the majority of fat populations, and they're also saying that obesity affects military readiness, they're naming that they need for, for black folks to no longer be fat to be able to make up our, our military base, right? That is a huge issue because now you're asking black folks to <laughs> to be imperialists, right? Um, and so 
I think that there's a number of ways that I really could talk about this and the ways that this like becomes a big issue that is racialized in many different ways. But I, I think that all that I've named just now are a few examples of that. I think it's uh, it's sad but unsurprising that we have all of this stuff, you know, diet culture and all of these things that are, you know, objectively harmful in a lot of ways. And it all goes back to the military needs more cannon fodder to like <laughs> conquer places like what the hell? <laughs> yeah. It's, 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 it's frustrating because it's like, <laughs> it's like the, the U S will, will go to any lengths to be able to, maintain its imperialist status right to maintain it as an empire and we know that but i but i think that what's perhaps more frustrating is how indoctrinating that is to the point that folks don't even know that this is something that's written on the cdc's website right or that this is this was a big part of for example michelle obama's campaign as a first lady um so much about what she did with school lunches was not about caring for children. It was about making kids ready to, to be in the military. Those are words out of her own mouth, by the way. But, but what I think is perhaps deeper than that is that health as a concept is born of slavery. And what that means is that some of the earliest sort of forms of medical diagnosis that we have on record are through white supremacist anthropologists and eugenicists who are literally creating whole mental and physical illnesses as ways to punish slaves for revolting, literally. Samuel A. Cartwright is one of the first, and he creates these two medical diagnoses in, in the 1800s as a way to stop enslaved folks or as a way to uh, punish enslaved folks for revolting, literally. And that is the, the basis, the foundation of health of the medical industry in our, in our country. Mm -hmm. And then we've only built on top of that by creating BMI, by creating institutions like the CDC, by creating, you know, all these different forms of violence that are intended to harm fat Black folks in particular. And non-Black folks who experience the harm of this as well are only experiencing this, this sort of residue of anti-Blackness, right? That's, that's how permeating anti-Blackness is, that even folks who are actively benefiting from anti-Blackness are also being directly affected by anti-Blackness as well because of how violent it is, because of the fact that no person fits directly inside of these constructions, right, that, that are supposed to make the perfect man or the perfect person. Mm -hmm. I think that that's always very important to name because <laughs> I think more, more people than not will never actually ever fully benefit from any of these violences. And yet they also don't even recognize that they're being directly harmed by them. And in many ways are advocating for the continued demise, subjugation, ob objectification of black folks, of fat folks. And don't understand the ways that it that it directly affects them too. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I, I have some personal experience with this. I've lived as a you know outwardly presenting fat white guy, <laughs> and then I lost a bunch of weight, and I was a, a thin white guy, and then I transitioned, and I was a thin white girl, 
mm-hmm. and then I'm back to being a fat white girl. Right. Uh, and each one of those experiences were different from the others. And that's not even adding in race as a factor. Right. So like, I totally like understand part of the stigma that you sort of talk about that comes along with having, you know, a fat body. I don't know where I was going with this, <laughs> but what would you say to the people who sort of scoff at the idea that there's discrimination against fatness or fat people? <laughs> My initial thought was fuck them, but <laughs> <laughs> cancel them. <laughs> cancel them. um no i mean i think that and i know that both of you know this just from all the advocacy work that y'all do too sometimes it can be really easy to forget that these folks are indoctrinated in the same society that we have been so it's like it's hard to remember that sometimes because sometimes folks really they try you like And you're like, listen, I <laughs> I just want to cuss you out and, and that's the end of it. But I, I think that for, for me, it depends. It depends on if folks are actually willing and open to hear, right? To, to understand, to, to, to learn. And I use, I use the word here, not like in the physical sense, but as, as to say to, to understand. I have come across a lot of folks who are like, I've never heard of this a day in my life, but I want to learn more. I want to know more of what this, what this means. I want to know how I'm contributing to this. I want to know what I can do to combat this. And those are folks that I'm like, you know what? I will spend all day educating you if you want me to, because I know that it's not wasted time. And then there are folks who you can bring out every statistic in the book. You can bring out every single theory in the book. You can bring out every lived experience, and it does not matter to them. Those are the folks that you cuss out. (laughs) (laughs) So I I think for me, it's just like, it it just really fully depends on how invested a person is in divesting from, or rather, I I don't want to use the word divesting, is interested in unlearning all of the violent ways that we have been taught to to treat and not relate to fat folks and fatness. And I think that for me, in my investment, is in making clear the violence of anti-fatness as anti-blackness, right? Making clear that there is no way of separating fatness from blackness and therefore separating fatness from slavery. I'm not invested. I'm not as invested in changing hearts and minds. I think that that will happen for folks that it's supposed to happen for when they learn the work, right? I think my investment is in just making clear exactly how inextricable they are from one another and therefore how important it is to have an analysis around anti-Blackness as much as it is to have one around anti-Fatness or rather that there is no way to talk about anti-Fatness without talking about anti-Blackness and vice versa. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes it means having high-level sort of theory conversations, right? And sometimes it means getting to the heart of it. And what I try to do is be aware of what spaces I'm in so that I'm able to connect fatness to the identities of the folks who are in the space. Because the reality of the fact is that anti-fatness directly affects every single person, irrespective of what your identities are, right? So in the book, for example, chapter six is titled Meeting Gender's End. And that entire chapter 
is about the violence of, of gender and the ways that it disrupts fatness, particularly as it relates to trans folks. So I interview seven different trans people, fat black trans folks in particular, and what it means to be navigating that experience. Like what, what was it like for you as someone trying to get gender affirming surgery? What was it like for you as someone in the workplace as a fat black trans person? What has it been like for you to be in trans spaces, whether it be for communal reasons, for romantic reasons, for platonic reasons, for sexual reasons, as a fat black trans person? Like what, what have these experiences been like as a way to sort of show the reader or the listener or however you're engaging the book as a way to, to show them that like the data that we get comes from actual people? And in order to be able to get that data, we have to actually understand what folks are offering. And mm-hmm. these seven folks never talked to each other at any point in this entire process. And we all came to the same conclusions. And so that's mm-hmm. like one aspect within chapter four is all about police violence. So I bring that to spaces that are made up mostly of Black folks or that are Black-led, that are doing work around police violence to make clear that like police violence is a racial issue or a Black issue, but it is also a fat issue. And it has to be explicitly clear that it is a fat issue because most of the folks who are being antagonized by police are also fat. And that's not by mistake, right? That is a big part of Mm -hmm. what it means to exist as a Black person in the world, but it's also a big part of what it means to exist as a fat person in the world. I've spoken to a lot of like medical professionals about chapter three around health as a concept and the violence of it and what it means to be a health professional to be working yourself out of a job, (laughs) essentially. So that's how I try to show up in these conversations. You mentioned earlier, if we could just go on a a slight tangent to really an anti-fat experience in my life. Um, I think most trans people are aware of this, but I think most cis people aren't. But there is a BMI requirement that most bottom surgeons have. You know, you have to be this thin to be able Mm -hmm. to get this life-saving gender-affirming surgery. Top surgery, too. Top surgery also. I went for my sort of prep appointment. It was six months out, and they were like, "Uh, okay, your weight is like right on the edge of our requirement, so make sure that you lose a few pounds between now and your surgery date, which was six months away. And I kind of forgot about that. (laughs) And I... I actually gained a little bit of weight and I I think I got like a pre-intake paperwork thing that was asking about my weight. And I suddenly remember that conversation and had a panic attack and I called the doctor and I was like, hey, like I just weighed myself this morning and this is what I came in. And they're like, oh, well, we don't know if we can do the surgery now because like you're not in our limits. So they had the whole thing. They took a couple of days to consult and then they came back to me and they're like, okay, so if you just, I think they said lose as much weight as you can before the surgery date. This is like two weeks before. That's so fucked up. So I have been dreaming of the surgery my entire life. I have a date. It's two weeks away. Of course I follow mm-hmm. the doctor's instructions because I don't want them to cancel it. And I actually crash dieted. I lost 14 pounds in two weeks, which is not healthy in any way, shape or form. Mm-mm. And I showed up and they were like really happy Fuck that. that I like crash dieted before this major surgery. And I'm sitting here thinking there's no possible way that this is a healthy situation. Like, wouldn't you want your body to have like reserves <laughs> of energy? Like, do you really want somebody to be losing 14 pounds in two weeks before the biggest surgery of their life that has all these potentials for complications? And like that one experience 
turned me into the Joker. I swear to God, like that was my Joker <laughs> moment with this stuff. I mentioned before, like this is not like my primary focus, right? Because I make a living covering trans issues. But like I have experienced the absurdity of this system <laughs> myself. Yeah. And like I'm fairly well off for a white trans person. Um, so if I'm running into this, what are other people running into? And I know plenty of, of my friends who have given up on the idea that they will ha- be able, ever be able to have bottom surgery because they just cannot lose the weight. You know, I have more than one friend with eating disorders because they tried to lose weight just for this one surgery. So you're saying all this stuff and it's like triggering my brain with this awful experience. So yeah. thank you for the lead <laughs> to be able to tell that little story, but like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. No, thank you for sharing that story. Cause literally what the fuck? Like <laughs> this is, it's so common. And what I found when I spoke with some of the folks in um, chapter six was that there were some doctors who were like, okay, sure. We'll do this surgery, but we're going to charge you three times what we charge <sighs> within folks who do these surgeries. Oh, turning into even more of the choker. Right. Like, <laughs> literally, they're like, okay, sure, we'll do this surgery, but we're going to charge you this amount instead of this amount. And we know that so many trans folks are having to raise funds in the first place to get these surgeries. So now you're having to go back to your audience and like, okay, I have to raise this amount now because my doctor won't let me have this surgery because I'm too fat. But that that brings me to like a larger question around what would it look like for us to be able to exist in these flesh bags and these bodies <laughs> just as they are if gender wasn't what it is, right? If mm-hmm. it wasn't something that's defined as, as strictly or as narrowly as it is, or if it wasn't something that, that existed at all, right? How would we know that we don't feel affirmed in, in our bodies if we didn't have to deal with this white supremacist structure that is gender. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's frustrating because the reality is that so many trans folks, many of whom are fat, many of whom are black, right, are having to sit with those exact questions every mm-hmm. single day because they don't know what it means to be able to afford to be able to pay for these surgeries. And I don't mean just financially, but also because of the size of their body or the color mm-hmm. of their skin. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that it is just a particularly violent experience that I don't think we collectively fully understand. I, and I don't think that we really get the ways that like this is only a reality because gender exists, because mm-hmm. race exists, because body discrimination exists. And it's it's niche. I feel like not many people are really clear on just how much you're affected as a fat trans person by doctors who will tell you you cannot have these surgeries because you are fat. <laughs> or they put you in a predicament like what you just shared, Caitlin, which is outrageous to me, but it's also way too fucking common, where you have to crash diet, you have to literally give yourself eating disorders in order to be able to have a surgery that affirms you in your body mm-hmm. like to me it, it just is unspeakable you know what what you were just saying Deshaun, about kind of like people not being you know aware or like i think that there's so much that we're we all need to do all of the time to kind of unpack the ways that the the world and the way it was built is so mm-hmm. wrong 
and hurt so many of us. Um, yep. you, you mentioned earlier, like uh, diagnoses going back to to slavery, like so much about America and about how our country was built goes back to systems were, that were developed around slavery. And just like so much of living a, a better life or kind of undoing all of this, um, the ways that the world has taught us like how to be and what's good and what's bad is just going back and unlearning all the propaganda that we've just been inundated with from childhood, really. Um, and so I really appreciate the work that you've been doing to, you know, illuminate a lot of that. Thank you so much. That means a lot. I'm trying. <laughs> Is there anything else that we should be asking you right now that we haven't touched on? I think I want to just drive home just sort of some, some of what you just said that if folks get nothing else from this conversation with us, I want folks to leave with an understanding that there is no way to separate discrimination against fat folks from anti-Blackness. Mm -hmm. And that in order to, to talk about these experiences, right, and this is not just about fatness, right, it's, it's about discrimination against the body at large, right? All of these experiences, there's no way to talk about that without talking about anti-Blackness or without understanding anti-Blackness, because it does go back to slavery. It always goes back to slavery. What I urge non-Black folks to get clear about is that any of the violence that they are experiencing from these structures is residue that they're very being that their body helps to sustain, right? That that is to say that whiteness is sustained, anti-Blackness is sustained by the very being of white bodies, by whiteness, right? By non-Black bodies. And I think that that has to be made clear because we can't have a real conversation about the pervasiveness of anti-Blackness if we're not clear about what actually helps to sustain it. And if we're not clear about who helps sustain it. And so I just want to make that that point very clear. But I I think that this has yeah. been a really, really cool conversation. And again, thank you all so much for allowing me to be a part. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show. How can our listeners uh, follow you and, and your work going forward? Yes, so um, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok <laughs> at Deshaun LH, so D-A-S-H-A-U-N-L-H. In my bio on all of those um, platforms, there's a link to my link tree, which has a number of ways to find my book or other podcasts or different things like that. Um, you can also find my website there, which is DeshaunHarrison.com, and that has my portfolio, all of my written work, as well as any services that I offer. Um, and then as well as my Patreon, which is just another way for folks to support me if they want to financially. So yeah, that's how you can find me. Thank you, Deshaun. Thank you so much. Caitlin, are you ready for some out of context cancellations? I was born ready, baby. Okay, so we're going to cancel it being 80 degrees in February. Yes, I like the warm weather, but it is because global warming, which is bad. Um, and we need to not have 80 degree weather in February. It's bad. Even for, e even, even my Texan ass thinks so. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't mind 80 degree weather in February. Caitlin, we're going to cancel you for promoting <laughs> global warming. <laughs> we're going to cancel 
neighbors for being territorial about public street parking. Yeah, don't be an ass. It's street parking. There's no assigned parking. Get out of here. Uh, One of our listeners wanted to cancel leaving your work computer on a plane and not being sure which one. Uh, Sounds like there was a connecting flight or something. That sounds real bad. I would lose my shit if I lost my work computer on a plane. I lost my work computer on a plane. (gasps) I I was flying back from... Oh my god, the story is stressing me out so much. You were. Can I tell this quick story? Yes, you can. Uh, so I was a speaker at the women's conference uh, that Women's March put on a few years ago. It was in Detroit, and then I went out to Chicago to visit some friends. And I was flying home, and I was actually writing the piece about uh, the women's conference that I was writing for a publication. And I like just finished the draft, and then I had a bus ride, so I was going to do my editing on the bus trip and I get off the plane (laughs) and um, I go to wait for the bus and I realized I don't have my laptop with me. I tucked it into the seat in front of me, you know, the little pouch thing. So I were running back to like the desk in a panic being like, I need this immediately. Blah, 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 blah. And I was working offline. So like none of my piece would have saved to Uh uh Google docs or anything. And they managed to call up to the plane. And like, I guess uh, one of the um, attendants that was like taking the tickets sprinted down the shoot thing to get to the plane just before they closed the doors. <gasps> and they managed to get it. The cor- cortisol? Is that the stress hormone? Yeah, Whatever the stress hormone yes. is in my body is like so high right now. Yeah, it does not sound like a good time. Oof. We're also going to cancel doomers. And Kate, I have a question. Are we doomers? I think we have to be, right? I mean, we started the show with a genocide joke, so we're definitely doomers. Okay, yep. So we're canceling ourselves. Love it. (laughs) Um, We're also going to cancel some poorly maintained infrastructure. Correct. Um, And hold music with trombones. This one seems very specific to me. I'm so sorry. Uh, Oliver, can we cancel venture capitalism? Yes, yes. Also, dogs getting old and sick. Yeah, we just want our sweet little puppies to last forever and be healthy and happy. This one is very relatable to me because it happens all the time. Cancel being out of groceries while also being too ADHD to go grocery shopping. Story of my life, too. The key, in my opinion, is to get either delivery or the pickup version if you have a car. Ah, so so related, cancel your grocery delivery being incorrect. Um, And also, in parentheses, they still get five stars in a tip, but I'm going to be a little annoyed, which is so true like it's like oh i wanted i wanted this and i got this but also (laughs) we all live in capitalism hell and everyone deserves a five-star review and a tip no matter what so (laughs) this is the world we live in (laughs) this next one is also very relatable to me we're canceling migraines oh and i've been getting migraines from a tooth problem and i'm actually going to get the tooth fixed today so i'm very excited (gasps) Yay! Hopefully you have no more migraines and a toothpick. Yay! Uh, Cancel people who claim vaccines cause autism despite the link being thoroughly debunked and patently offensive. 
Yes. I can't believe people are still saying that. And this listener also wanted to, us to cancel their cat, Quincy, for scratching them. Yeah, my cat can be a little asshole like that sometimes, too. I'm still anti-canceling cats. Uh, we're going to cancel the last listener for trying to cancel their cat. Oh, wow. Uno <laughs> reverse card. <laughs> um, and also going to cancel cramps because cramps fucking suck. If you'd like to submit your own out-of-context cancellation, you can do so on our Discord server, and you can access that by becoming a Patreon supporter. That's $5 a month or more, or you can just support us with a tip if you like our show for $1 or $3. And if everyone who listened gave just $1, we could fund having an editor, so I don't have to host, produce, and edit the show. Um, which would be incredible and make me so happy. Um, and we could also, we would also have enough that we could do that and also do our show weekly. Um, so that would be freaking amazing. You can join and learn about our other perks like early show access at www.patreon.com slash cancel me daddy. Today's show was made by me, Oliver Ash Klein, and my incredible co-host, Caitlin Burns. Steve Peterschmidt made our theme song and Eden M.W. designed our graphics. Our show is made possible by the incredible cancelers supporting our work, especially the members of our Canceler Hall of Fame, with the great power to cancel all of their enemies, Meg, Dahlia, and Catherine. We appreciate your support. Happy canceling! Mm-hmm.